One of my areas of research is the scholarship of teaching and learning, or SODL. And these last two years provide kind of a very rich opportunity to think about what worked well, what new innovations emerged, what we should never try again, no matter what. <laughs> but it's also kind of a moment to ask meaningful questions about, you know, whatever role we play in higher education, what do we want to see going forward? And what role can and should institutions of higher education play in promoting digital literacy, in improving online learning? The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey there. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. This week on the Digital to Learn podcast, we get to come back for part two with Kelly Shrum. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And for those that were not able to catch part one, you can go back and listen to that episode on your favorite podcast provider, and also check out our associated resources on our website www.digitaltolearn.com with a numerical two. For now, let's dive right back into our conversation with Kelly. There are two recent publications of yours, and there's actually more, just so our listeners can hear that. You've been very busy these last few years with research, and all of the articles that associated with your name sounded so exciting to me, but there's two that we want to focus on here, and this first one is called Cultivating Research Skills Through Scholarly Digital Storytelling came out in 2021. Could you expand on that one for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I co-authored this with a doctoral student, Sarah Bogdevich, and this was part of a broader study on scholarly digital storytelling that, you know, I was just having so much fun doing it and I was loving what I was seeing. So I wanted to try and capture some of that and learn a little bit more about what was happening for the students in this experience. So we talk a lot in higher education about traditional research skills, and they're very highly valued. So I wanted to look at what was happening in scholarly digital storytelling classes, specifically with research skills, and how those research skills could be developed through technology-enhanced assessment, in this case, scholarly digital storytelling. So I interviewed 32 graduate students who had taken my course since 2010, And then we analyze this data looking also at their coursework. So their blog posts, their reflections, drafts of their digital stories, and then their final story. And we found that students were cultivating a range of research skills through this process and skills that are also considered traditional research skills, such as autonomy and flexible thinking, as well as multimodal research skills that are increasingly important, I think, in the digital age. So I can talk a little bit about those. Autonomy is a really critical skill for all students to develop. So most students have practice reading what's assigned to them and answering prescribed questions or writing on predefined topics, but they have a lot less experience often um, in defining their own topics, identifying audiences, conducting research, crafting and refining their own arguments, and then producing shareable digital products. So some students shared that this class was their first opportunity to really follow their own interests. And one student said, to find the thing that I could endlessly research and still find interesting. Wow. Wow. That's quite a claim. 
Yeah. <laughs> and as a teacher, you know, that's the kind of passion for learning that you hope for and that you love Absolutely. to see. And so it often leads to really interesting, high quality work. And then flexible thinking, I think of as sort of a habit of mind. So the idea of doing, creating, revising, rethinking, revising again. And, you know, sometimes that comes through in writing papers, but when you're creating a digital story or editing a podcast, you know that that's essential to do many times often. So, you know, as I said before, I teach these small assignments that help students build their skills and really practice that iterative thinking and learn how to do that and learn how to see that in their own work. So one student talked about, you know, sort of a two steps forward, one step back process. The creative process often involves that, but that once you come to a good idea, he said, you sort of can't bemoan the path you took to get there because every step of that journey is necessary. So, you know, understanding that process, like I could tell you that and I could tell you over and over again, but it won't really sink in until you've tried it yourself and you've seen how that works. So I was interviewing some of these students almost a decade after they'd created their scholarly digital stories. So one semester in their graduate program, maybe a certificate, maybe a master's, maybe a PhD. And then years later, they were able to talk about their projects in detail and talk about how this experience influenced their thinking and how they continued to use some of these tools like storyboarding in other contexts, which I found really exciting. And then multimodal research is really about moving beyond text-based knowledge and that kind of text-based world that really dominates so much of academia. So sometimes a student comes to the class, like I said before, with a background, and sometimes they come with no background in multimedia. But throughout the course, students are learning to film and edit and to think about it, a lot of different kinds of sources, including video and audio. And so they're also learning about background music and audio levels and how audio shapes a story. So one student had traveled to an archive in another state, and she found these oral histories on cassette tapes. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then had to figure out how to digitize those. And in doing that, really brought these voices from the past that had been unheard for decades into the story in a very authentic and impactful way. And another student wanted to tell the story of the suffrage movement in the U.S. and found an illustrator drawing for a suffrage magazine and picked that specifically because of the visual medium of digital storytelling, knowing that those images would sort of help draw people into the story and the time period in a way that words alone couldn't. So I'll just say one more example because I love talking about this. So one student... <laughs> thought that the course would be really easy. And occasionally students will take this course thinking, oh, it's easy because I'm not going to write a long paper. And then they're often surprised to learn that digital storytelling demands a lot more accountability. So mm. at the end, you know, she said, well, I could have written a fluff paragraph here and there and sort of gotten to the word count that she thought she was really good at that. <laughs> you mean students actually do that? I'm shocked. No, just this one. Okay, 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 good. Um, wow. But, but with the, yeah, but with the digital story, she came to learn that every word mattered and every image mattered and every sound mattered. And so she had to work really hard, a lot harder than she expected, but in the end was really mm -hmm. proud of her work and the skills she had learned along the way. It occurs to me as you describe this, as we read, something in history. We are reading the end point of a long process mm -hmm. 
where that historian muddled around in things and couldn't figure it out, had a lot of frustrations and dead ends, kept looking, kept persisting to find something to share. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think as academics, we should be more forthcoming about that process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I also love when you describe your journey is you mentioned in the bio section earlier, your background's in history, but it's just so neat how you yourself kind of branched off into this area of visual arts and created a, a niche career that is so impactful and unique and needed in education today. Thank you. It's very inspiring. I, yeah. I feel lucky to have found a place where I can do a lot of different things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We say Brad and I talk like that too, that when you do what you love and a lot of it, the variety, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Yeah. It's a blessing. So our next question may be somewhat redundant because every answer you've given has been filled with enthusiasm and joy, (laughs) passion about what you're doing. So are there some other things that you're working on in research or teaching that bring you joy that we haven't talked about? Yes. (laughs) I knew there would be. (laughs) Um, So as part of this larger research on scholarly digital storytelling, I interviewed 25 faculty from six countries across a range of disciplines. So education, biology, history, digital arts, medicine, anthropology, and they'd all taught some version of what I've been calling scholarly digital storytelling in a higher education setting. Some with undergraduates, a few like me who've been teaching with graduate students. So I was really curious, how does this work across disciplinary and national boundaries? How are faculty blending student learning with this production of knowledge in digital environments? So were they learning the same things that I was seeing in my classroom, new ways of asking scholarly questions, of presenting academic research, of developing digital skills, of students expanding their capacity for creative and flexible thinking, for persistence, and sharing their work, like I said before, often for the first time with their families and communities, and sort of bridging that gap that many students often feel between what they're doing in an academic space and their life outside of college. So I'm currently working on an article that explores these many experiences. So the fears, the challenges, the successes, the kinds of things that have helped them teach this when they've taught it more than once, as well as student engagement and student voice. And then I also have a relatively new project on the history of higher education that kind of somewhat amazingly and maybe for the first time brings together all of my academic and teaching and digital interests. So I'm really excited to bring all those together. So higher education programs around the country typically include a history of higher education course. And when I first had the opportunity to teach that course at at George Mason University, I was really surprised to find that it's not usually taught by historians and that there were almost no OERs or open educational resources available for engaging students in this history. And having worked in digital humanities for a long time, I was really surprised. I just expected that there would be some good resources online. So I've gotten two small grants from a program in Virginia called 4VA. And in collaboration with colleagues at other Virginia institutions, have started a project that now includes developing an OER on the history of higher education in the United States with primary sources and secondary sources and a database of college and university archives 
where they've been digitizing their own institutional resources about the history of their institution. And then we're also conducting research on teaching the history of higher education nationally and research on how students learn historical thinking skills and digital skills through creating online learning activities. So we're applying for some more funding to expand that. And so stay tuned. Hopefully there will be more to come. Wow. (laughs) I am so intrigued by your research interests and persistence. And I know the research is on Audience Matters, but the audience that you've been able to kind of tap into too, is just so inspiring. So when you look at what you've learned, whether it's from the research that you've done or your own experiences in higher ed, your own experiences working for an institution right now with the way, like you mentioned, teaching in the classroom and then moving online and kind of where we are in higher ed today. Have you developed any new predictions about the future of higher ed that you could share with us? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball (laughs) to answer that. And I think one of the things we learn by studying the past is that our predictions for the future are not often very accurate, Mm -hmm. but it's still fun to make them and to think about it. (laughs) So I think we're in a really interesting moment, especially for teaching and learning in higher education. So the kind of emergency remote teaching during the early days of the pandemic forced so many people, so faculty, students, instructional designers, administrators online so quickly and and without time to plan and prepare and the kinds of things we would normally do to make this a more seamless and thoughtful transition. So I think some faculty responded by taking what they were doing in face-to-face classrooms and replicating that online. And others saw it as an opportunity to try more active learning, more project-based learning. I think everyone did their very best to manage a really difficult and unexpected moment. But I think it made some people maybe even more hesitant about online learning, teaching and learning with technology, because they didn't have the time to plan and prepare for it and to experiment with it. So I think the future of higher education, especially teaching and learning, is going to require a lot more flexibility. And I hope this leads us to a place where faculty and teaching centers and instructional designers have some time and space to reflect on the past two years and to think proactively about the future. So in an ideal world, we could take the time that it takes to really think about what works best in each modality and each discipline and each teaching context, and then to shape our classes around that. One of my areas of research is the scholarship of teaching and learning or SODL. And these last two years provide kind of a very rich opportunity to think about what worked well, what new innovations emerged, what we should never try again, no matter (laughs) what. But it's also kind of a moment to ask meaningful questions about, you know, whatever role we play in higher education, what do we want to see going forward and what role can and should institutions of higher education play in promoting digital literacy, in improving online learning, and in the capacity to sort of learn new tools and adapt to changing digital environments. So I have three models that I use. I teach a class called Higher Education in the Digital Age. One is use the right tool for the job, which at its heart is really about figuring out how to identify and assess digital tools and to really think critically about how to use them. 
The second motto is that being a digital native is not the same as being digitally literate. And the third is don't let the tail wag the dog. So <laughs> I encourage my students to be persistent, to be resilient, to give themselves the time and space to experiment and to take risks, to have productive failures, and to think critically about digital tools. I hope the future of higher education brings more of that. I love that. And I love the mottos that you've chosen and can enforce from class to class with your students. It's great. This has been great fun. It's always awesome to have a guest who is so passionate about what they're doing. And you can hear the joy coming through the microphone. So Kelly, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. I will say, Kelly, before you go, we have an old segment. It's probably been a year since we've done it. We would ask them about their favorite digital tool. So for you, Kelly, I am curious before you go, with digital storytelling, I know that technology tools change, but is there a particular tool that you are especially fond of and would encourage your students to use when compiling digital stories? It's a great question. I give students the freedom to pick their own tool. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some students, like I said, come in never having done this and some are already using Final Cut or Premiere. Mm -hmm. But I do start, there's some really nice kind of WYSIWYG tools. So Animoto is one, Canva is another one, Adobe Spark. So I often start students there where you sort of drag and drop and you don't have to do a lot of production. And then, you know, talk about there's sort of a balance between the learning curve and what you can do. So a lot of students then move to iMovie and some to things like Final Cut, but certainly more than when I started this 10, 12 years ago, some of those easier tools you can really do a lot with. Mm -hmm. So you can control a little bit more of the production and audio. I'm pretty eclectic when it comes to tools that sort of find the right tool for the job, but I like getting students to play with a couple different tools, also an experiment and think about what each tool does well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're going to be looking for your name. Any indication of where we might see your name pop up next? Is there a publication on the horizon or a conference coming up? Great question. I have a number of things in the works. And so hopefully this article that I'm working on that shares the experiences of so many different faculty who've done work uh -huh. with scholarly digital storytelling will be coming out. And then definitely watch for more on the History of Higher Education Project. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for being here, Kelly, on Digital to Learn. Thanks to you, Brad, for continually being a great co-host and putting up with me. Thanks, Mike, behind the scenes for the production element. This has been another great two-part series of Digital to Learn, and we're going to have our resources associated with this episode, including links to Kelly's research, available on our website, digitaltolearn.com. Thanks, everyone. Come back next week. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.